0: I would do today is give you the history behind the five solas. So this isn't more of a sermon. This is more, uh, we're going to school today. We're going to learn about the Reformation and give you the backdrop behind the story of the Reformation. And the key verse here that I want to focus in is in Romans 1, 16, 17, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jews first and also to the Greek. For it is the righteousness of God is revealed from faith. For faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is the verse that Luther contemplated on. And I'll get that, in that to that in just a minute as to how this verse was key to launching the Reformation. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that we live in a country where we can have this time to worship together freely. We thank you for shining the the light so brightly during the Reformation and bringing us out of the dark ages, focused on your word through Christ into your glory. Prepare our hearts to hear how the light shined as we learn about this time frame. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So a warning, this presentation is rated R. (laughs) You're going to hear a lot of Reformed theology. You're going to hear explicit Calvinistic language and Christ-centric themes and strong references to sovereignty. This was at the heart of the Reformation. Going to the f- look at the five solos, I tried to pr- come up with a picture for you. Oh, yeah, let's stop here at the map first, because I don't want to go back and forth. So this was the way the world was laid out in Europe at the time of the Reformation, so you see England up there, France and Spain were their own countries. But you see in the middle of Europe, it was the Holy Roman Empire. There was no Germany, there was no Netherlands, Austria. It was all part of the Holy Roman Empire. And you see, and there's no Italy either. Pope controls part of Italy, and then there's some city-states. So that is kind of the, uh, the map during the, uh, the Reformation period of time. So you have that in your picture as we talk about things going through it. So now we want to go to the next slide, uh, Alex. Sorry about that. Uh, I wanted to paint a picture to help maybe remember the five solas. So we have here, uh, think of it as an ancient temple. And the foundation, as we talked, as Steve already talked about, is sola scriptura, meaning scripture alone. The Bible is the sole and final authority in all matters of life and godliness the church looks to the Bible as its ultimate authority. That's why during the time of the Puritans and the Reformation, they elevated the pulpit so high. If you go back to the churches in New England, over in England, you see the pulpit is elevated. They were proclaiming sola scriptura in their churches by elevating their pulpits. Sola gratia, meaning grace alone. Sola fide, meaning faith alone. Salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. It is not by works we come to Christ empty-handed. This is the great doctrine of justification by faith alone. It is the cornerstone of the Reformation. Sola Christus, meaning Christ alone, there is no other mediator between God and sinful humanity than Christ. He alone, based on his work on the cross, grants access to the Father. Sola de gloria, meaning glory of God alone, all of life can be lived for the glory of God. Everything we do should be done for his glory. The reformers called this the doctrine of vocation, viewing our work, no matter what kind of work it is. Back then, it was only work in the church was considered to the glory of God, but all our work can be done to the glory of God if we do it in a God-honoring way. Those are some of the uh, things that the Reformer taught, and this is an outline of the Reformation, the five solas. And since we've gotten into the five solas, I can't help every time now I read Scripture, I see the five solas in the Scripture. The songs we sing today, I see the five solas in the Scripture. It's been really edifying to think from that mindset that, Everything that the Reformers taught was grounded in Scripture and the five solas. The five solas was the gospel message that had been lost during the Dark Ages and rediscovered by the Reformers. So how did we get here in 1517 when the Reformation started 500 years ago? That this backdrop, what is the backdrop that set this up? the Reformation that changed the world. The, the Middle Ages was from 500 to 1500 A.D., about 1,000 years. It coincides with the fall of the, of the Roman Empire when Rome was ransacked in 476 A.D. It is also known as the Dark Ages. From a secular perspective, they look at it as the Dark Ages because civilization came to a crawl when the Roman Empire uh, crumbled the, the great buildings the aqueducts the infrastructure system the roads that the roman empire built had come to a stop from a christian perspective the church had lost its way to the point it was considered the kingdom of darkness by some if you look at your timeline in your handout just at these lines these purple lines across the top this is from this these timelines go from 1500 uh, i'm sorry from uh, 1300 to 1700 AD. These were the times, the times were times of sickness with the Black Death or the Bubonic Plague or simply the plague. It's estimated that 75 to 200 million people in Europe died from the plague at this time frame. The sweating sickness, which was primarily in Europe, but did hit, I mean primarily in England, but did hit Northern Europe, was epidemic in that time frame that I show there in the middle, in, at the time of the Reformation, waves of sweating sickness. If you contacted sweating sickness, you died within 24 hours. No known cure. Even to this day. We, they don't really don't know what it was. The time were times of war. You see the 100-year war there, the 30-year war, the Anglo-Spanish-American War. I mean, not Spanish. Anglo Spanish War. And it was the times, the times were times of poverty. There were several peasant revolts at this time. That's not noted on there. But I'm trying to paint a picture. It's very dark. We got sickness. We got poverty. We got war. People are looking for answers to life. And is this punishment from God? And they're going to a church that is dark and not teaching the message. And they're They're left hopeless in this dark age. The Bishop of Rome had taken over as the head of the church in the early times of the the church. They declared the Latin Bible as the only translation allowed. At the time of the Reformation, Latin was the official language of Europe and England. It was spoken by the kings and their courts and the church. But the common person did not know Latin. And when they went to church, all they heard was Latin. I mean, how many are old enough to remember hearing Latin messages in, in Catholic churches? Yeah, And people just sat there and had no idea what was going on. One hundred years later, you have the fall of Rome and the start of the dark. I'm sorry, I skipped a bullet here. The, uh, as I mentioned, the Latin Vulgate, and that was started in 382 by Jerome. He, he translated uh, the Greek into Latin, and that became known as the Latin Vulgate, the official Bible of the uh, Roman church. Then we have 100 years after that, the fall of Rome. Fast forward now to our timeline. In the upper left-hand corner, you see John Wycliffe in the green there. John Wycliffe is noted for writing the first Bible in English. It was a handwritten Bible because the printing press hadn't been invented yet. He had these manuscripts that uh, were being written, and he was very critical as his chair, as the professor at Oxford University, criticizing the Roman church for their abuses, primarily their wealth and indulgences. He thought the church should dispose of its wealth and share it with the poor people. He became an enemy of the church. By 1378, the church had gotten so corrupted, there were three popes simultaneously. This lasted until 1418. They were making a mockery of the church. Remember now, as I tell this story, Wycliffe died in 1384. He died of a stroke. He was teaching at the time he had his stroke. Three days later, he died on December thirty-first on New Year's Eve in his in his church. In fourteen O one, this is thirteen eighty-four. Now fourteen O one, England made it legal to burn heretics at the stake. And in fourteen O eight, a law was passed forbidding, forbidding the Bible in English, and that's that's noted down. Down here I have those those two acts down here in the lower left hand side of the of the page. The Pope had Wycliffe declared as a heretic after he died in fourteen fifteen. Remember he died in thirteen eighty four. And as a result, he was to be burned, dug up and burned in his remain and, uh, but that did not happen until fourteen. 28. They hated Wycliffe so much, they dug him up 44 years, years later, burned all his works, crushed his bones, burned him and threw him in the river. Just giving you an idea of the price people paid to bring us the word of God. And I'll give you a couple more examples. Students of Wycliffe at Oxford wrote down everything he wrote and took them back to their home country of Bohemia as they were studying at Oxford. Jan Hus, another martyr, adopted Wycliffe's teachings and began preaching against the church. He published works and preached in the local language. This infuriated the Pope, and Huss was declared a heretic and burned at the stake using Wycliffe's works as kindling. Have you ever heard the term, your goose is cooked? Huss's name translates to goose. It was a mocking term, Your goose is cooked. His last words in 1415, when he was burned at the stake, was, In 100 years, God will raise up a man whose call for reform cannot be suppressed. Almost exactly 100 years later, Luther nailed his 95 thesis that lit the fuse of the Reformation That could not be put out. But before we get to Luther, there are three other events that made the Reformation possible. See, it was easy back then because they could destroy people's works so easily because they were hand copied. There weren't a lot of them. So they could suppress the knowledge. But Gutenberg in 1450 invents the printing press. And in 1555, he prints the first Bible, the Gutenberg Bible, on the printing press. It's considered one of the most beautiful Bibles in the world. It's the most sought after by collectors. And it was so large, it took two volumes. It was in Latin. It was the Latin Vulgate. It was about as tall as this Bible, but in two volumes. The printing press has been considered, because of its impact on society, the invention of the millennium. Now information can be mass-produced at a low cost and be disseminated to everyone. The second event is the fall of Constantinople in 1483. It was the end of the Byzantine Empire. It was the capital of the Greek Orthodox Church. The Ottoman Empire is expanding and knocking on Europe's door. They are known as the Turks or the Muslims. And what happened after they took over? The Greek refugees start flooding into Europe. And what do they bring with them? Greek manuscripts. For the first time, we have something in God's Word, besides the Latin available to the people, we now have it in Western Europe in the Greek. They start arriving up at Oxford and Cambridge in England. Thomas Lineker, a teacher there, after reading the Gospels in Greek and comparing it to the Latin Vulgate, wrote in his diary either this, the original Greek, either this is not the Gospel or we are not Christians. That's how corrupt the Latin Vulgate had gotten. You could not recognize the gospel in the Latin Vulgate. John Collette taught from the Greek into English at Oxford. And I'm just amazed at people's minds that can do that. Read the Greek, tell it to you in English, right on the fly. And I got to experience that at the Shepherds Conference. uh, Dr. Abnu Chow, Uh, he was one of the teachers in one of the breakout sessions. His personal Bible is the Greek-Hebrew Bible. You ask him a question, he looks at it, he reads it in Greek, and then he explains it to you in English. I mean, it's just amazing minds. Later, he preached illegally because you're not allowed, remember that law back in 1408, to teach the Bible in English. He taught at St. Paul's Cathedral. And within six months, 20,000 people were attending church every Sunday. To hear God's word in their own language. And another 20,000 people were standing outside that couldn't get in. Can you imagine today if we had people thirsting for the word like that today? Today if you go to St. Paul's Cathedral. They have seating for about 200 people. And most of them are tourists. It's really a shame to see the decline over time. One other note on some martyrs back in 1519. There were seven martyrs, six men and one woman that were burned at the stake. Their crime, according to the church, was teaching their children the Lord's Prayer and the Ten Commandments in English. And what's even more despicable is they got their children basically to testify against their parents and got them to recite the Lord's Prayer in English so they could prove that their parents had taught it to them in English. In 1516, Erasmus was so moved by these two men, Thomas Lindeker and John Collette, and what they could gather from the Greek manuscripts, he decided to go out and accumulate as many Greek manuscripts he could, and he ended up publishing the Greek New Testament. It was a parallel translation, and he translated from the original Greek into Latin. And now you can compare Latin purely translated from the Greek with the Latin Vulgate and see how corrupt the Latin Vulgate translation had gotten over time. Now the stage is set. We've got the printing press. we got the Greek manuscripts. Inner stage, Martin Luther. A man almost killed by a lightning bolt prayed to a Saint Anne, To let him live, and if so, he would become a a monk, he lived, he followed through on his promise, and became a monk. Luther eventually became a monk like Paul, a Pharisee of a Pharisee. He was a monk of a monk, trying so hard to save himself. Work righteousness. He was more zealous than anyone trying to be saved by works at that time. His soul was in torment because he knew he was not saved. Luther got a copy of Erasmus's Greek New Testament, and he saw the Greek word for repentance is not even close to the idea of the word that was translated into the Latin Vulgate, which said, go and do penance. They took the word repent and made it go and do penance. So Luther, contemplating on Romans 1.17. the faith. The uh, go back here so I don't quote it wrong. The righteous shall live by faith. He tormented over that until he understood what righteousness was, and that it was by faith alone. That broke open the flood dike, if you will, and the light had illuminated. In Martin Luther's soul. So this, return, so, this return to Scripture, the Greek manuscripts from the original Greek, had an immediate impact on Luther's first 95 thesis. In October 31st, 1517, Luther nails a 95 thesis on the door of the Witten, Wittenberg church. Luther criticized the sales of indulgences, insisting that the Catholic doctrine of purgatory and the merits of the saints had no foundation in the gospel or in the scripture. But reform was not to be had by the Pope, and Pope Leo issued a papal bull, a bull in Latin is seal, so it's a... It's a document that's been sealed by the Pope, and it was referred to as the papal bull in 1520, condemning Luther's teachings and gave Luther 60 days to recant. And instead of recanting, Luther did something that had never been done before. He publicly burned the bull and hit the, the canons of the church and made a declaration. During the next five years, 1517 to 1521, the rift between Luther and the Pope grew as Luther discovers the gospel in the five solas and preaches on them and writes about them. The Pope excommunicates him, calling him a wild boar. Luther returned by calling the Pope the Antichrist. The showdown came at the Diet of Worms where Luther thought he would get a chance to debate his points. In the spring of 1521. But Rome had other intentions. They only had two questions for him. They had out there on the table all of Luther's works. And they asked him if those were his works. And of course he said yes because they were his works. Then they asked him to recant. And before Luther responded, he basically said, Can I take a lifeline on that? Because... He wanted to think about his answer and make a very godly answer. He wanted to pray to God, understand God's will. And he basically asked for time till the next day to answer the question. And he prayed all night to God. If you see the movie and you see him face down in his cell, it's just amazing how, how he submitted to God and God's will. Here is his answer the next morning. But I don't know how emphatically he stated, if he just stood there and basically stated it, or he's pounding the table or not, but I'm going to say it emphatically. Since then, you, your serene majesty and your lordship seek a simple answer. I will give it in this manner, plain and unvarnished. Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scripture or by clear reason, For I do not trust either the Pope or his consuls alone, since it is well known that they are often in error and contradict themselves. I am bound to the Scripture; I have quoted, and and my conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot, I will not retract anything, since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. I cannot do otherwise. Here I stand. God help me. Amen. <laughs> Luther is clearly stating scriptor sola scriptura. Luther's friends whisk him off to safety because he's been declared a heretic. His death sentence is to be burned at the stake. But he's, he's hidden and protected by one of the princes in, in what we know today as Germany. Back in England, King Henry the Right VIII writes what is known as the defense of the seven sacraments to refute Luther's claim that there's only two sacraments. The Pope, like what King Henry wrote so much, he was bestowed the title Defender of the Faith on King Henry. Today, all the, and since then, all the monarchs of England still have that title, Defender of the Faith. Luther went on to publish the New Testament in German in 1522 and the complete Bible in 1534. So the German people now have the Bible in their own language. On September 1st, 1524, Erasmus, the same guy that gave us the Greek New Testament, released a diatribe of the freedom of the will opposing Luther's denial of man's free will. Luther responded with his classic, on the bondage of the will in 1525. And I was able to put that down here at the bottom as a note so you can remember on bondage of the will when it happened in 1525. It's the classic uh, defending on the bondage of the will. Now the Reformation was on in full force. Now, just to put a personal note on Luther before we leave Luther, Luther married an escaped nun, And uh, he had six children with her, and he adopted six children. So just giving you a little bit of the background of the character of the person. Act two, enter center stage, William Tyndale. It was not long after that Master Tyndale happened to be in the company of a certain divine, recounted as a learned man, and in communing and disputing with him, drove him to that issue that he said, great doctor that the said great doctor burst into these blasphemous words and said, we are better to be without God's law than the Pope's. William Tyndale was a very zealous man. Hearing this full of God's zeal and bearing that blasphemous saying replied again and said, I defy the Pope and all his laws and that if God spared him life, Ere many years, he would cause a boy that driveth the plow to know more of the scripture than he did. That was William Tyndale's passion, to give us the word in the English language. He wanted the souls of England saved. And he knew that the only way it could be done is if we got the word in our own language. To try to get the Bible published in English, he went to the Bishop of London asking permission to do it. He was denied. So Luther realized there was nowhere in England that he would be allowed to do it because it was against the law if you did not have permission from the church. So he sets off to Europe. He is now an outlaw because people know what he's up to. And for 11 years, they chased him all over Europe trying to find him. He meets Luther for encouragement, he has Erasmus' New Testament, and the work begins. In 1525, he begins printing the Matthew Bible, and this is some of the challenges he had. He got it up to chapter 22 before he was found out. He's got minutes to go and grab all the works and escape before they raid the printing shop. And he gets all his works, and he goes downriver to another, or upriver to another, another location. That's sometimes known as the Cologne uh, Matthew's Bible because it was done in the city of Cologne, but it only goes up to chapter 22. Finally, though, in 1526, he prints 3,000 copies of the Tyndale New Testament, and it is smuggled into England. And he wanted it to have it in our words, in our, in our hands, and he made it small so we could hold it in our hands and read it. This is a copy of only two of the existing 1526 Bibles that exist Today, and it's in the British Library. This is a copy of the one. And you can go on Amazon.com and buy this for like $20 if you want your own copy. And it's written in, in black Gothic type font. It's hard to read, but you, you take time. You give, study it for five or ten minutes. You'll start to learn how to read it. So Luther wanted us, I mean, sorry, Mr. Tyndale wanted us to have this in our hands. Because back then, only the Bibles were the pulpit size. King Henry was furious, and he started to hunt him down even more so. All Tyndale Bibles were to be found and burned. The king's men even bought them, which funded Tyndale for the next edition. And when they were burned, they were burned publicly to make a statement to the public. Now Tyndale had his eyes set on the Old Testament. He has the Pentateuch translated and he has found out again, and he moves upriver to a new location. And while he's gathered all his stuff up to go to the next town on the river, he's shipwrecked and loses all his translation he just did and labored over on the Pentateuch. He has to start over. He's got Miles Coverdale with him, another person we'll talk about in a minute, helping him out. It takes him about six months to recover from that and publishes him in 1530. And he does the book of Jonah in 1531. Now, I didn't know this until late this morning. Why did he do the book of Jonah after Pentateuch? And I, I looked and I found a, a book written in the 1800s called The Doctrines of Grace by some uh, teacher that was publishing his teachings. And I saw in there the book of Jonah, the key between the Old Testament and the New Testament. I didn't get a chance to read it, but I started to think about it. What, what did Jonah do? He preached to the Gentiles. That's the first time in the Old Testament we see that God's word was not just for the Jews only, but for the Greeks or the Gentiles as well. And that's a key to the link between the Old and New Testament. I don't know if that's why Tyndale did it, but it's interesting to think about. In 1534, he publishes his second edition of the New Testament. It was 1526, the first one, with over 4,000 corrections. Corrections it sells out in a month, and that's, we have the uh, 1534 edition here. English English was still an embryonic language, and Tyndale continued to refine the English and give a better sense of the Greek. He's known for doing his translations in what is known as monosyllables, or one-syllable words, trying to keep the words simple for Common English person to understand it. He didn't read, he did not write it for scholars. He wrote it for you and me. Also in 1534, King Henry splits from Rome and starts the Church of England and declares himself the head of the church. In 1536, Tyndale is finally caught by a Judas. He is betrayed. He's held in a dungeon for 500 days before he was finally strangled and burnt at the stake. His dying words, may the king of England's eyes be opened. In less than a year later, the Matthew Bible will have a license from King Henry to circulate the English Bible in England. So God answered his prayers. This is a, a quote I found from, an uh, I think it's uh, from David Daniels, who did a, a an extensive biography on Tyndale. Such was the power of his doctrine and sincerity in his life that during the time of his imprisonment, it is said he converted his keeper, his daughter, and others in the household. Sound like anybody else we know held in prison named Paul? Also, the rest that were with him conversant in the castle reported of him that if they if he were not a good Christian man, then that, that they could not then tell whom to trust. He was a man of character, integrity. Another note on Tyndale's personal life. He never married, but he, even though he was a wanted man and they were looking for him throughout all Germany, he still took the time one day a week to devote to helping the poor and the sick and he went out and, and uh, ministered to those people. As unbeknownst to Tyndale, while he was in prison for 500 days in a deep dungeon, this is in northern uh, uh, Europe, Miles Coverdale had published the first English Bible, but he translated it from the English and in the, in the Latin, and it became known as the Coverdale Bible. Remember, he was helping... Translate the Pentateuch as an assistant to, uh, to Tyndale. Following right behind that, in 1537 was a man named John Rogers, who was also a co-worker of Tyndale. He got a hold of Tyndale's unpublished translations from second, uh, up to Second Chronicles and published the Matthew Bible in 1537. So in the Matthew Bible, it's the New Testament and all the way up to 2 Chronicles plus Jonah is all Tyndale's work. And then he used the rest of Coverdale's work for the balance of the Bible. Tyndale's name was still not welcomed in England, so Rogers used the name Thomas Matthew as the author. So sometimes this is known as the Matthew Bible or the Matthew Tyndale Bible. And as I mentioned, the Matthew Bible had received a license from King Henry VIII. That's in 1537. And maybe the reason that King Henry VIII did that, remember back in 1534, he split from the church. He wanted an English Bible so he could snub his nose to the church of Rome. Okay, Act 3, John Calvin, center stage. Calvin was a Frenchman that was converted to Protestantism in 1533. Protestants were not safe in France, and Calvin eventually ended up in Geneva, which was already a Protestant city-state. So he was converted in 1533. By 1536, just three years later, after his conversion, he writes this first edition of The Institutes of the Christian Religion. And it's still to this day considered one of the best doctrinal statements of Christianity. And he did it when he was 27 years old. Geneva was basically a Christian theocracy. It was a, and Calvin was the theological head of the Geneva Republic. John Knox, the famous Scottish Protestant, declared Geneva as the most perfect school of Christ since the days of the Apostles. Queen Mary I ascends to the throne in 1553 after her sickly half-brother, King Edward VI, died at the age of 15. His dad was King Henry VIII, and his mother was Jane Seymour, wife number three. She was Catholic, and she was taking England back to Rome under the Pope, and she was going to do it with a vengeance. She resented what her dad, King Henry VIII, had did by divorcing her mother, Catherine of Aragon, wife number one, and pushing her into the background. And she was a very formidable politician and influential person. For like 20 years, they were married. She was, not, she was no slouch of a queen. She was a devout Catholic, and Mary also resented her dad from turning away from Rome. She began persecuting the Protestants. In 1555... Remember, John Rogers, who's responsible for the Matthew Bible, is the first person to be a martyr under Queen Mary. His wife and 10 of his 11 children were present. He was not permitted to say goodbye to them. And it was the first time he had seen his youngest. On the morning of his execution... It took the jailer several minutes to wake him from a deep, deep sleep. He was resting, assured his soul was saved. He knew the next morning he was going to be with Christ, and he rested well that night. The mood was like a wedding, a celebration. The sheriff asked him if he would recant, and Rogers replied, That which I have preached, I will seal with my blood. The sheriff declared, I'm a heretic. And Rogers replied, that shall be known on the day of judgment. And the sheriff said, said, I will never pray for thee. And Rogers replied, but I will pray for you. And as he was being burnt at the stake, his dying words where, Lord, receive my spirit as he washed his hands as he was being burned. <sighs> These were courageous people. It's just amazing what they did for us. Miles Coverdale was next on deck in the sights of Queen Mary. But before she could get him, he was off to Europe and ended up in Geneva. And what happened in Geneva 233 Protestants had left the persecution in England, and this became known as the Marian Exile. Others included John Knox and John Fox, the famous historian that documented the death of the martyrs, were all in Geneva, as well as Miles Coverdale. There were other exiled cities, too. Other Protestants ended up in Germany and other cities in Switzerland as well. All total, Mary would burn 284 Protestants at the stake. 56 were women, and they were from all walks of life. Not only clergymen, but even laymen, even tradesmen, everybody from every walk of life, even a 15-year-old. And 30 died in the horrible prison conditions, waiting to be burned at the stake. Thus the name Bloody Mary. If you want to know more about them, just go to Wikipedia, type in Martyrs of Queen Mary, and you'll see the whole list of them by number and what order they were. She even burned the Archbishop of Canterbury at the stake. And there's a list of also the 60 that King Henry VIII had burned at the stake. John Fox immortalized these martyrs for us to remember the price that was paid. This is the title of his book acts and monuments of these latter and perilous days, touching matters of the church, wherein are are comprehended and described the great persecutions, horrible troubles that have been wrought and practiced by the Romish prelates, especially in the realm of England and Scotland, from the year of our Lord, a thousand unto the time now present, gathered and collected according to the true copies, writings, and certificates. He did not like... It being shortened to the Book of Martyrs, which we kind of know it as today. He wrote in one of his editions I wrote no such book bearing the title Book of Martyrs. I wrote a book called The Acts of Monuments. And then I think he went on to recite the whole title again, wherein many other matters be contained beside the martyrs of Christ. That was in his 1570 edition. Treasonous didn't get the sentence of burned at the stake. They were either beheaded or hung. All these events, including the burning at the stake, were public events because you're trying to make a point to the public to keep the public in line. Many in front of St. Paul's Cathedral. The people that attended the public, it was almost it had become a spectator sport because it was happening so often. And people started turning this into party time. And then the next morning, after so much partying, the term was coined, you're hungover or hangover. So if you want to know where that word came from, it came from the time of Queen Mary. Now, public beheadings, I don't have the time to go in here, but there was one other queen between Edward and Queen Mary, and that was, uh, I'm just blanked out, Lady Jane Grey. She was the queen for nine days before Mary disp- deposed her. So the, the, they were trying to get another Protestant back on the throne, trying to keep Queen Mary off the throne, and Queen Mary had her. And the reason I want to bring this up is uh, we don't have the time to go through her, but there's five pages in the Fox of Book of Miners about Lady Jane Grey and her, when she was asked to recant what her responses to all the questions were, and how grounded she was in Scripture. I just can't believe... At 16 years old, she was so grounded in the Scripture, and she responded and put down every question she was asked. And she knew she was going to be beheaded that day. Two days earlier, her husband was beheaded. Both her parents... I mean, both fathers of the, each one of them were beheaded. As, so they're not listed as true martyrs because they were more political reasons that they were... They were uh, they were killed. So they're not in the list of uh, the Book of Martyrs. In 1557, an English Marian exile in Geneva was was named William Whittingham, takes Tyndale's New Testament, updates it. Remember, the English language is still changing. Adds chapters, verses for the first time in our English Bibles. Italics to words that are not in the original Greek that are there to help us make better sense of the Greek and with most profitable annotations of all hard places. First time we're getting a lot of marginal notes to help us understand the Bible better. It is the first English Bible to be printed, also in easy Roman uh, typeface. John Calvin writes the introduction to the New Testament. Christ is the end of the law. And it's a nice little edition that we can carry around with this as well. It's kind of stuck there in the middle, the little one. In 1558, Bloody Mary dies, Queen Elizabeth I ascends, she's from wife number two of King Henry VIII, she's Protestant, and the English exiles start returning home. But some of them stay in Geneva because they want to finish the work of the Bible, and they finish it in 1560, and that's this one here. And the reason these Bibles are so thick, they also include the Apocrypha, and I'll deal with that in just a minute. The 1560 Geneva Bible is considered the first study Bible. And it's the first English Bible to be wholly translated from the original Greek and Hebrew. Took all of Tyndale's work and the part that hadn't been translated that were used by Coverdale earlier, that was translated from the Latin or the German, had now gone through the work of translating that from the original Hebrew. The Geneva Bible quickly becomes the most popular Bible in England. It's the Bible of Scotland. It's the Bible of the Puritans. It's the Bible of Shakespeare, who quoted it over 5,000 times in his plays. It's the Bible of John Bunyan. It's It's the title, I mean, the Bible of John Milton, who wrote... Just blanked out. Paradise lost and paradise regained. And it's the Bible of the pilgrims. They brought the Bible on the Mayflower. And you go back now. This is from Geneva, a Geneva Republic. You see all the persecution and all the state control of the churches. Do You can see why our founding fathers made us a republic and separation of church and state with this kind of historical background. Rome doesn't like... Of course, the Bible's in English because they know once people read the Bible for themselves, they lose control, which means less power and less wealth. The Rome, Roman church owns more land in Europe than anybody. They're the largest landowner in Europe. And if you put all their holdings together, it's the size of the state of Texas. So it gives you an idea of the wealth that the church has accumulated over the years. Now that Queen Elizabeth is on the throne... She implements the first act of uniformity, which you kind of see below her name, uh, in 1558. If you don't go to the Church of England, you will be fined. It's like if you don't get health care, you'll be fined. If you don't go to the Church of England, you'll be fined. In 1559, Queen Elizabeth declares she is the head of the Church of England and with the second act of supremacy. And in order to have a job in the church... Or in the public domain, you have to swear an oath to the queen. This was an attempt to keep the Catholics out of the church and the public uh, jobs, the government jobs. In 1561, the reformed churches of the lower countries, the low countries, published their confessions of faith in the Belgic Confession. Now the reformers are starting to consolidate all their thinking and put it down so you can, we can remind ourselves what it's all about. In 1562, the Church of England does the same thing and publishes the 39 Articles of Religion. In the meantime, Rome is trying to figure out how to stop the progress of Protestantism. From the Protestant point of view, it is the beginning of the Counter-Reformation. How can Rome counter the Reformers? From Rome's perspective, it's the Catholic Reformation. They convened at the Council of Trent in 1545. Trent is a city in northern Italy. This is still back in the reign of King Henry VIII, 11 years after breaking away from Rome. Rome has northern Germany, Switzerland, and the Dutch breaking away as well, all at the same time. At the conclusion of the Council of Trent in 1563, during that time, Mary had unsuccessfully tried to take England back. And the Council of Trent reconfirmed and doubled down on the Catholic dogma. They refuted the five solas, and they were not going there. And they proclaimed the Apocrypha as inspired scripture and made it a part of the canon. And the Latin Vulgate was the only allowed Bible. The reason they needed that Apocrypha in there, that's the only place of purgatory ever mentioned anywhere. About the only reform that was accomplished was stopping some of the corrupt practices of indulgences. Another counter move was that was an English version of the Bible itself made by the Catholics, starting with the Reims New Testament in 1562. It was made in France. Reims is a city in France, why it's named the Reims New Testament, and then the Old Testament in the city of Dewey. And it became known as the Dewey Rhymes, Catholic English Bible in 1610. Spain is trying to take the Netherlands back to Catholicism, and during the English-Spanish War, we're helping the English, some the English are helping try to keep Spain out of there. And so Spain attacks England. In 1588, the famous, the famous Spanish Armada Armada is defeated, and now Spain is now dwindling as a world power, and England comes onto the scene as a world power after defeating the Spanish Armada. 1618 to 1648 was the 30-year war. As you see up there under the red line at the top on the far right side, 8 million casualties in Central Europe. It was a bloody war. One of the most devastating wars Europe has ever had for 30 years. And the Holy Roman Emperor Ferdinand II was trying to impose Catholicism on everyone in in the Holy Roman Empire. The war eventually enveloped everyone in Europe including the Ottoman Empire. Meanwhile, back in England, Queen Elizabeth has consolidated her power, and she has a successful reign for 45 years to 1603. After King James I comes to the throne, he quickly commissions a team of scholars to create the King James Version of the Bible at the recommendation of the Puritans in 1604. King James did not like the Geneva Bible either, he said, "No bishops, no monarch." He liked the Episcopalian form of church government. He did not like the Presbyterian form. Even though he was a king in Scotland and that had the Presbyterian church leadership, which is elder-led church leader, church uh, government, he wanted to. He knew that long term that could not protect a monarch. So, in 1611, the Anglican King James comes out with minimal scripture cross references and no notes. It is not a study Bible. And this is the first edition up here. It's known as the He Bible because Ruth 3.15 has a misprint, uh, a she is a he when it should have been a she. I don't know who found that. They found it like right after it was printed. But anyways, so if you want to know if you have an original 1611, go to Ruth 3.15 and find out if all the he's and the she's are in the right place. Even with that, though, and it was intended, of course, to replace the Protestant Geneva Bible of the Puritans. But the Geneva Bible is still the most popular Bible in England, all the way up until 1644, 33 years after the King James is released, only because King Charles I outlawed it. In the meantime, the Reformers are documenting the rest of their theology. After the Belgic Confession came the Heidelberg Catechism in 1563. It comes from the Reformed churches on the Rhine River. In the Low Countries, Reformed theology is officially being challenged. Just like in the time of Paul in writing his epistles to the early churches who are starting to drift away from the gospel that they were given Correction is required already in the Reformed church in 1610 already. The Arminians, uh, they, they are challenging the five articles of faith based on the t- teachings that they drew up. And you'll see a reference to them on the left-hand side, the doctrines of grace in big print. You'll see there are the canons of Dort. The Armenians, as his fathers came to be called, represented presented these five doctrines to the state of Holland in the form of the remonstrance, which stands for protest. The Arminian party insisted that the Belgic Confession of Faith and the Heidelberg Catechism, which were the official expressions and doctrinal positions of the Reformed churches, be changed to conform to the doctrinal views contained in the remonstrance. The Arminians objected to the doctrines of grace held by the catechisms and the confession relating to divine sovereignty human inability, unconditional election, predestination, particular redemption, irresistible grace, and the perseverance of the saints. It was in connection to these matters that they wanted the official standards of the Church of Holland revised. The Synod of Dort was held. Dort is a short name for the town it was held in in, in, uh, near Amsterdam of the Reformed churches and responded and they developed what is known today as the Canons of Dort, 1619. They unanimously developed the Canons, thoroughly rejecting the remonstrance, and set forth sola scriptura. If it wasn't based in Scripture, they weren't going there. You can see them there on the left hand side of the timeline, as I said. They have also become known as the Doctrines of Grace, or the Five Points of Calvinism. And an acrostic was made later in time, named after the Dutch flower, the tulip, and which aids in memory. So I put them in the same order there. In the first letter of each one, one through five starts with one of the letters of tulip. They started with, preser- uh, they started with uh, predestination was the first point that they addressed, in that document. And what's nice about all these confessions, if you have the Reformation Study Bible, all these confessions of faith are in the back. And it's a nice, easy reference. And they're all online. You can find them all if you want to look these up for your own to see what they say. One more attempt here by the Catholics. It was called the Gunpowder Plot of 1605. This is King James now. Remember, he just commissioned the, the 1604 work to begin on the King James, which culminated in 1611. It was an, assassin, assassin, an assassination attempt against King James. They intended to blow up the Parliament building, the House of Lords, on opening day. The king and his court would be there. All, the the the, common, the House of Commons and the House of Lords all meeting together. It's like a State of the Union address. Everybody's there. If anybody's watching Designated Survivor, it's kind of like that. They intended to blow up everybody. And they had gotten to the point, they had all the gunpowder in place underneath the, the parliament building with 36 barrels of gunpowder, more than enough. And it was discovered midnight the day before the bombing was to take place. It is now celebrated November 5th in England as Guy Fawkes Day. He was the one that was guarding the gunpowder. Of course, there was more, and they caught the rest of the people that were involved in the plot. And England celebrates it with bonfires and fireworks. (laughs) (laughs) Moving on now to King Charles I. There was a struggle between parliament and monarchy over the divisions of power in parliament. The Puritans are very influential, and they are pushing for more reforms of the Church of England to remove the last vestiges Of Catholicism, also King Charles trying to bring Scotland into under England and unite the two countries. So a civil war is broken out now between the forces of Parliament and the monarchy. That would be like us having a civil war between Congress and the President, and they're having the monarchy is having a war with Scotland. All kind of going on at the same time. Finally, an agreement, some kind of agreement is reached with King King, Charles. And he caves into the Puritans and, and the Scots and agrees to give up the Episcopalian form of government if Scotland will submit and come under English control. So the Westminster Assembly is assembled to come up with a new doctrine of faith for, the, for this new government. It's convened in 1643. It replaces the 39 articles of religion for the new combined church. The attendees are known as the Westminster Divines. And in, in 1468 they, they draw up a Calvinistic Westminster Confession of Faith and the long and short catechisms. King Charles I loses the Civil War and is captured and tried and unanimously is condemned for treason and beheaded. Oliver Cromwell is now in control, Lord Protector, the first Lord Protector of England. He's the first person of non-royal blood to be in control of England. He is a Puritan. In the meantime, Charles I's son, who escaped to France, is regrouping forces and coming back to take control, and he becomes King Charles II. Oliver Cromwell's sons died, his son took over, he wasn't very good general, and he lost to King Charles II. One of King Charles's first act is known as the Act of Uniformity, In 1662, it's a very dark day in England. It reinstates the Episcopalian form of government back to the Church of England. It rejects the Westminster Confession and makes it the only church allowed. And if you don't conform, you were dubbed a nonconformist and you were removed from your pulpit. And at day in 1662, 2,450 ministers that printed, preached the five solos, preached the doctrines of grace were removed from their pulpits, including 2,000 Puritans. It is, known, it is also known as the Great Ejection, and it's one of the darkest days in English history. To be sure, King Charles put the Puritans out of business he implements the Five Mile Act in 1665. It forbade the nonconformists conformists for preaching within five miles of their former pulpit and towns. And it forbids them to live in those towns. And they cannot be buried in a town. Many Puritans were buried in Bun Hill Fields burial grounds without headstones, one on top of the each other. At the time, it was outside the city limits of London. Today, it's inside the city limits of London. It's right across the street from Wellesley's church, the Methodist church, where John Wellesley preached. Some of the most prominent people buried there, John Owen, considered the Calvin of London he was a westminster divine too that helped withdraw the, West, the westminster confession paul bunyan is buried there thomas goodwin is buried there another famous puritan preacher isaac watts the great hymnologist who wrote over 750 hymns daniel defoe who was the author of robinson crusoe and susanna wesley the father or the, the mother of john wesley just to give you how crude and rude and vulgar the times were. Oliver Cromwell's body, as well as others, were exhumed later, two years later from Westminster Abbey when King Charles II came into control. And hung him posthumously, beheaded him, and had his head put on a 20-foot spike and displayed at Parliament Building from 1661 to 1685. And the only reason it stopped then is because it fell down in a storm. And somebody gathered it up. And then it was in private hands. And we know where it all It's all documented where it was. It was even on public display in museums. Oliver Cromwell's head was not put to rest until 1960. I don't know who wanted that thing all that time. (laughs) Okay. Before King Charles I was executed, he became a Catholic in his... And his brother, King James II, uh, becomes a Catholic and is on the throne. We now have a Catholic uh, king again in England. He disbands Parliament and starts appointing Catholics to prominent positions. Then James enacts the Declaration of Indulgences in 1687, overturning the Act of Conformity, thus allowing a religious liberty. He's, He's trying to get the Catholics back into the mainstream of government in the church. Then he produced a Catholic heir. Moves were already being made to have his son-in-law, which became William III, and his daughter, which became Queen Mary III, better known as William and Mary of Orange from the Netherlands, which were Protestant to invade England and be installed as king and queen. So this was all done with the, uh, with the parliament working against king, Char- uh, king James II. James actually refused to fight against... William and Mary, and escaped to France in exile in what became known as the Glorious Revolution of 1688. William and Mary overturned the act of indulgences, and the English monarchy has been in the hands of Anglicans ever since. So what did the Reformation do for us? First, per Steve Lawson, it brought back preaching to the pulpit. It was biblical, sola scriptura, It was sequential, expository, tota scriptura, total scripture. It was exegetal; it explained from the Greek. It was fearless preaching in the face of Rome. It was passionate preaching. These men knew their Bible. They knew the Word of God. They knew the doctrines of grace, and they boldly proclaimed it. It was understandable teaching teaching us how to apply it in our lives, which goes with also pastoral preaching. It was polemic preaching, which means it was defense of the faith. It was explaining why we believe these things. It was evangelistic because it could save people's souls. And it was God-exalting, solidate Gloria. As Steve Lawson summarized, the great reformers were among the most influential preachers in the history of the church. They were arguably the greatest theologians and commentators the church has ever known. First and foremost, these spiritual leaders were preachers. The magisterial reformers gave themselves to the exposition of the word as perhaps no generation before or after. Stephen Nichols wraps up the Reformation in his observation. The gift and legacy of the Reformation entrusted to us is the rediscovery of the biblical doctrines embodied in the five solas. The church of every age needs to be reformed by submitting to the authority of Scripture alone, proclaiming the gospel of grace and justification by faith alone, through Christ alone and by seeing all of life through the service of our primary vocation, living for the glory of God alone. These doctrines form the bedrock of all that we believe, and the Reformers gave these doctrines their finest expression. In addition to the doctrines we routinely believe, the Reformers also laid out for us many of the practices of the church that we take for granted today. The church had lost sight of the sermon, Celebrating the mass instead, the reformers returned their sermon to the church service. In the case of the Puritans in England, that returned with a vengeance. Congregations didn't sing in the centuries leading up to Reformation. In fact, Jan Hus, one of his his um, one of the pre Jan Hus, as we talked about, was condemned as a heretic for, among other things, having the congregation sing. Luther and the other reformers restored it. If you remember last week, we sang a mighty fortress is our God. That was written by Luther. Knowing this should humble us every time we sing in church. We should offer our heartfelt thanks to Luther. We should remember what Hus gave us for a privilege. And of course, we should remember what all reformers have done for us. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for shining the light so brightly through the Reformers. Giving them the bravery and the courage to preach your word, to stand on the solid ground of Scripture, and to realize that we are justified by faith in Christ alone. We pray for all those that do not know Christ. And if you do not know Christ, we hope that your ears were pricked today, your heart was pricked, and that you contemplate on these things and to know that there is no other way to God except through Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, the the closing song, and then after the song, we'll have one more event. this is by Isaac Watts. who's one of the guys I said was buried in Bunfield. Actually, that stands for Bonefield. A lot of bones were taken out of St. Paul Cemetery and dumped into that hill. He was born there. He wrote, When I surveyed the wondrous cross in 1707, Charles Wesley said he would give up all his other hymns to have written this one. and this is based on galatians 6:14 but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our lord jesus christ